Last week, on Monday the 14th of September, as over 2 million hectares of forest burned across the west coast of North America, US President Donald Trump met with Californian state officials to coordinate a response to the crisis. California Governor Gavin Newsom made it abundantly clear that he believed climate change was a key factor in the country's worsening wildfire seasons. Something's happened to the plumbing of the world. And we come from a perspective, humbly, uh, where we submit uh, the science is, uh, in uh, that climate change is real, and that is exacerbating this. And so Trump was far from convinced. In his mind, this terrible fire season was due to poor forest management. The science was still out on climate change as a contributing factor. When another official pressed him further on climate change, he simply said, It'll start getting cooler. I you, wish, just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. Trump's response reminded me a lot of our own leaders' responses during the Black Summer bushfires here in Australia. There was this narrative that if we could just do the right amount of hazard reduction burning, bushfires wouldn't be the massive problem they are. Even as experts insisted hazard burns weren't the be-all and end-all. They were acting as if the problem would just go away. Earlier this week, I spoke to David Bowman, an environmental scientist from the University of Tasmania, and he reiterated that there was no quick fix for bushfires in any country. It's absolutely astonishing, the adaptive changes that are going to have to take place. It's not like just one thing, you know, do a bit more fuel management or, or build better houses. It's the whole shooting match. These worsening fire seasons weren't going away anytime soon, and it was time we started looking at every solution available. Hi, I'm Marco holden Jeffrey, producer of The Kicker. In this week's episode, we look back on last summer's devastating bushfires and the voices and solutions that seem to go unheeded. Steph Barker, a survivor of the fires, and her fellow reporter Elsie Lange explore the complicated position fire seems to have in the Australian psyche and ask, what can we learn from Indigenous fire management practices in a hotter future? A warning, this episode may contain content that is distressing or traumatic to some listeners. This podcast is being recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty has never been ceded. My name's Elsie Lange and my co-host Stephanie Barker is a survivor of the 2019-2020 summer bushfires that tore through Australia. What was really scary about the 2019-2020 fires was, I mean, there were a couple of things. Number one was just the the sheer magnitude uh, of the fires. So we had one racing up the coast from, from the south of New South Wales that was coming out towards us. We had one further inland um, that was coming out toward the coast. And then further up north, um, up northern country in northern New South Wales and, and even further north in Australia, there were fires as well. So it was sort of, you know, you felt like you were surrounded on all sides by this fire and just the sheer wild nature of, of how, you know, quickly they changed. That was really something like I had never seen before. Tell us a bit about that day. We went down to the beach and it was just such an intense scene. The, the smoke was so thick, just looked completely apocalyptic and yeah, it was just incredible. And I think what was so different really about this this fire um, more than any of the others that I had experienced was just the sheer size 
um, of it. There were widespread evacuations throughout the south coast and it was just so much bigger and so much more wild than I had ever seen before. I am from a place called Kalala Beach, which is on Ewing Country at Jervis Bay on the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, it's about half an hour outside of a small town called Nowra. You know, we've been evacuated numerous times. We spent one Christmas in the sea because it was just the safest place to be. Jesus, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> So fire has always sort of been an intrinsic part of how Australians experience summer. You are watching the tennis or the cricket and hearing about fires that are raging across the country. But the 2019 into 2020 fires were so devastating and so far-reaching that it led to a Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements, and that inquiry period is still ongoing. A nationwide approach to hazard reduction burns and the threat of climate change will be examined by a Royal Commission into the bushfire crisis. But today the Royal Commission is specifically looking at prescribed burning, hazard reduction burning, and whether enough was done and whether more should be done going forward. Now, Steph, the Bushfire Royal Commission handed down its preliminary findings in early September. Can you break down a bit of what it said? So this was an interim report that was hinting really at future recommendations. And what it included at this stage was suggesting the use of a national cabinet model um, to manage natural disasters. And that's similar to the national cabinet that was used uh, during COVID. The commission also says that working on a new Australian warning system for bushfires needs to be finished as a priority but there's been a lot of debate around incorporating Indigenous fire methods in Australia's bushfire response and in its preparation. Was that reflected at all in the Commission's findings? What was striking about these preliminary findings uh, were the comments on the effectiveness of prescribed burning and other fuel reduction strategies. The report actually said that while such mitigation strategies can make a difference to the severity of bushfire behaviours and also increase potential suppression, that these activities would not, and I quote, eliminate bushfire risk. So it sort of sounds like Indigenous knowledge in this space in tackling bushfires, despite the massive discourse around adopting First Nations methods, was sort of overlooked. Absolutely. Victor Stephenson, a writer, filmmaker and land management expert who's a descendant of the Tagalaka people from Gulf Country in Queensland, recently authored the book Fire Country, How Indigenous Fire Management Could Help Save Australia. So my name is Victor Stephenson, yes, and, um, and I've been working with Indigenous Fire Management for a long time now. Victor recently spoke in a webinar for the Pau Costa Foundation about Indigenous Fire Management. Victor said there are some areas in Australia that don't belong to fire and that look after themselves. But there is a lot of country that Indigenous people do and have cared for, they do apply fire to, and that country needs the people to continue those practices. Victor also spoke about how difficult it is for Indigenous Australians to have their knowledge of country be heard and respected by government. For us here, getting started in Australia was really hard, you know. It was like starting off like many other communities and around the world are probably out. We're, we're struggling to be heard and Aboriginal people are struggling to get their aspirations on the table. And Indigenous peoples are struggling to um, 
apply their knowledge on country um, and have a go in demonstrating the values into the landscape. And that was something that I seen as an urgency um, with many um, people in this country here in Australia. And so we started to work um, towards that goal in demonstrating that knowledge. To explore this idea further, I spoke with Joe Morrison, a key strategist from Northern Australia about the use of fire and First Nations land management. Uh, I'm Joe Morrison, I'm Dargaman and Mwalgal, uh, so from Catherine in the Northern Territory and uh, Mobiog Island in the Torres Strait. The NT, like much of Northern Australia with its dense tropical savannas, is one of the most fire-prone places in the world, but effective land management has reduced the areas that burn and the destruction of fires in those areas. Where Joe grew up in Catherine, fire is integral to the area and its people. In the stories from around that place, speargrass, a fire-dependent species, features heavily. If you have a lot of speargrass, you know that there's fire in that landscape. You know, being Indigenous and, and working and living and coming from Northern Australia, you know, is a place where we grew up with fire um, and we always expected the, the smell of smoke to fill the air in the dry season. There are many indicators used to uh, signal when it was good, good time to, to start burning. And, uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of burning as a child myself, with my father being a stockman, uh, but also with other Aboriginal people uh, around uh, the, the Catherine region as well. So Joe has obviously grown up around fire, and what sort of work has he done around its use in land care? Joe has done extensive work in this area. He was even at the forefront of adopting traditional fire management techniques to deploy against climate change. And how exactly has that come about? Well, he was instrumental in the West Arnhem Land Fire Abatement Project, which used traditional fire methods to reduce Northern Australia's emissions by hundreds of thousands of tonnes. The project led to a landmark greenhouse gas offset agreement between an American multinational company, the Northern Territory Government, the Northern Land Council and traditional owners in West Arnhem Land. That is really incredible and... That really makes me question why this sort of thinking around fire use in land care as a strategy for fighting climate change and for reducing the severity of fires hasn't been as successful in Australia's southern states. It's complicated and Joe says it's tied up in Australia's colonial history and in land rights. It shows the strength of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act with regard to Aboriginal sovereignty and that act only exists in the Northern Territory. Much of the North has some form of legal recognition of Aboriginal prior ownership of land, and that differentiates the process of establishing Indigenous land care practices from the way that it works down South. Joe says there is enormous opportunity in the South to return to traditional methods for caring for land. So just like the rest of Australia, the 2019 fire season was going to be really hard in the North because of years of drought and because of the heat. But despite this, Indigenous fuel management and fire suppression methods over the last decade prepared Northern Australia so that they didn't experience the severity of the fires that were seen in the southern states. There are always uh, commentators and actors that want to want to stop Aboriginal people from burning, and that you know that continues to now, even though there's good evidence to suggest that uh, you know what's been intervened in terms of people reinstating their fire practices using their knowledge um, is is absolutely beneficial on a whole range of levels. There is an absolute need to change 
um, the way that people see fire and the way that the Australian people see the environment here. Um, the British arrived here and they had very uh, European views about the environment. I think in, in Southern Australia, there are enormous opportunities to learn from the work in the North, but also to uh, do things slightly different, um, regardless of whether people have got legal tenure to their lands or not. The colonialisation of language is another issue in this space. Victor highlighted the fact that Indigenous knowledge systems are often communicated through speech and demonstration, and these methods of communication need to be respected. Indigenous knowledge systems, the only way that it can be um, um, showed to people and, um, and made aware to the broader population is through demonstration. And that is how it is um, passed down, that is how it is um, shown to people and proven. Um, in how it works. It's, it's never written down too much, you know, it's mainly through practical application and that's the way it's been passed on for thousands of years. So all the work to date for myself over the last 27 years um, has always been based on the practical application and that's the only way that it can be demonstrated and shared. Did Joe go into how the practices work at all? Yeah, he did. We talked about how fire use and land care by First Nations people responds to changes in the environment rather than by the arbitrary boundaries of seasons or calendar dates. In Western Arnhem Land, the cooler air of dry season combined with morning fog and the flowering of the woolly butt plant, which is a type of eucalyptus, signals the time to start small cool fires to prepare for later in the year. The nature of the climate, the global climate, is shifting quite dramatically around the world. Um, and uh, Indigenous people who have been living on their territories, uh, in my experience, are more akin to be able to read and understand those changes uh, and to be able to fit their management regimes around it. And I think there's a lesson there for, uh, you know, the, the broader population that they should uh, rekindle human relationships with their, with their environments a lot more closer than what they currently are. That's so interesting and actually it reminds me of other Indigenous fire practices um, that are used all over the world. Uh, for example, in the Amazon, uh, they typically use a fire fallow method, um, which is where the rainforest is felled, left to dry and then set on fire once it's really dry and that's just before the rainy season begins. And that results in a layer of ash um, that's actually really rich in nutrients that helps make the land more fertile, although that the results of that aren't seen for five to 20 years after the burn. That's really interesting because Joe also talks about how intrinsic fire methods are to Indigenous cultures across the world as well. The spanners around the world in, in parts of Africa and parts of South America uh, and even in places like California where uh, Indigenous peoples have long lived, have got long-standing deep connections with their country and their kin. Fire is a central feature of those landscapes. It's such a long-term way to think about the land and what it needs. It's amazing. The environment is probably really different, but in Australia, traditional Indigenous fire management deploys those low-intensity patch burns in the dry season to reduce the grass fuel, and then by creating fire breaks in the landscape this way, the severity of fires later in the dry season is minimised. Joe also talked about the tropes of untamed wilderness and dense bushland as pristine and untouched and natural as a kind of racism which I thought was really interesting. What did he mean by that? He suggests it erases the ways in which land has traditionally been cared for. 
In an article for The Guardian, he said that wilderness was actually country desperately calling for fire to rejuvenate it. There's a whole line of thinking around this idea, that by defending wilderness in a sort of environmentalist sense, it negates First Nations history and ties into the colonial idea that Australia was uninhabited before white people came. The earliest date of First Nations existence on this country just keeps getting pushed back, so to defend wilderness is to sort of erase that truth. The term wilderness, when, when you use it in its purest form, the reality is, uh, you know, 99% of Australia um, isn't a wilderness. Uh, you know, perhaps the highest peaks of the mountains uh, may in fact be, but I think, uh, you know, the majority is that Indigenous people have touched all parts of, of this continent over a long period of time and the date just keeps getting pushed back. So Joe is sort of saying that without acknowledging and revering First Nations knowledge of the country, it's hard to know the land very well and it's really vital in tackling whatever it is that the future holds. Yeah, exactly. And if the summer fires taught us anything, it's that it's time for listening. You know, with the rise of Indigenous management, caring for country, uh, I think we as a nation really needs really need to ask ourselves what kind of uh, uh, you know ancestor we as individuals want to be for our kids and, and their kids because at the moment the current trajectory is that uh, you know we we're not going to be doing so well and uh, you know the concern is for our kids and our grandkids is that they're going to be living in a world where Australia's been dug up and exported uh, we're going to be polluting. Uh, and we're not coming to reality around the fact that uh, these big events that we're having, whether they're fires or floods, aren't being dealt with uh, both in the national psyche, but also in terms of readjusting our economy. Thanks to our endlessly talented reporters, Steph Barker, who bravely recounted her own lived experience as a bushfire survivor, and Elsie Lange, who as well as reporting on this episode, produced its beautiful music. The Kicker is produced by Ariel Richards and myself, Marco Holden-Jeffrey. Special thanks to our executive producer, Janak Rogers. Tune in next week as reporters Nicholas Zambulis and Oliver Lees look at how TikTok is reshaping the music industry. Until then, we're on Twitter at KickerPod and on Instagram at thekicker.pod. Follow us for episode previews and spicy extra content. Don't forget to subscribe to The Kicker on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Sponsored by The Student Doll. Our theme music is by Jack Javins. This podcast was recorded, mixed and produced on the stolen lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.